And um, someone needs to let Matt know there's a couple of more chapters in the book of John, just in case he was, he was wondering about that. Um, but John chapter 19, and we're going to begin reading at verse 28. Let me invite you to stand, if you would, please. John chapter 19, I'm sorry, beginning at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and again, Another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, They laid Jesus there. Let's pray right now together, shall we? Lord, help us to take the truths, Lord, from this familiar story and to see, Lord, that you are desiring to teach your people some very important truths about yourself, some realities about yourself. You're seeking to expose evidence, Lord, of who you are and why you have come. And Lord, may we be humble before you. May we desire, Lord, to grow as a result of our time together in your word. And uh, Lord, we commit this time now to you, in your precious holy name. Amen. Now let me invite you to sit down, and uh, I want you to consider this passage. We are going through the Gospel of John, and one of the unique things about John's Gospel is that we have clear instruction as to why he wrote it, to give evidence so that we would believe and ultimately that we would have life. And so with that kind of backdrop, we come to another text in John's Gospel to seek to understand what is the evidence that's being portrayed here. Now, I have a question for you. What does it mean when we use the expression to be dead and buried? This is audience participation time. What does it mean to be dead and buried?
okay? There's the actual reality of being dead, dying and being buried, but it's an expression that means something. Well, one common definition is this. Something comes to a complete and total end. It's dead and buried. Someone might say it this way. As far as I'm concerned, the matter is dead and buried. It's over. It's through. It's done. Another person may define it this way. It has all long been settled and is not going to be reconsidered. So it is some issue, some consideration, some problem, some conflict, some struggle, whatever it might be. It is now dead and buried. That's the expression that we use. It's settled. It's over. There's no question about it. There's no reason to bring it up again and to reconsider whether you know, it needs to be looked at. It is dead and it's buried. Now, as we come to our passage today, we must understand that what John is recording for us is not simply him telling us a story about Jesus going to the cross and dying and ultimately going into a tomb and resurrecting. As if all sim John is simply doing is sitting back saying, now what happened next? Oh yeah, there was this. and Okay, yeah, that's right, that, that happened. And I'm, I'm just recording the events. No, John has a specific purpose in writing his gospel. Now friends, just stepping back from this, when we are reading God's Word, one of the things that is always important for us to understand is the author's intent in writing that particular book or letter. And if we don't have the author's intent, it's very likely that we will come to a conclusion of interpretation that is not what the author intended when he wrote those words. So this passage is critical for us understanding some foundational truths about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The truths here revealed and the evidence given will do three things. They will, first of all, establish us fully in being able to defend the truth. So John is giving us evidence for one reason, to help we who are followers of Christ to be firmly rooted so that we can defend the faith. Secondly, to ground us so that we are able to avoid being deceived by cunning arguments. Now friends, all you have to do is turn on Christian radio, or if you happen to have one of those channels on your TV that happens to be a Christian channel, and you are going to listen to a lot of cunning arguments that are not accurate. And John here wants his readers to have an awareness of what is true. And so he's presenting evidence to ground us so that we'll avoid being deceived. Thirdly, to enable us to speak confidently in a confused post-Christian culture that is being fed faulty views of Christ and his work on the cross. To enable us to speak confidently in a confused post-Christian culture. And that confused post-Christian culture is happy to run after anything that is not the truth revealed in the Word of God. They love to go after sensational stuff. And that's why the movie, The, uh, uh, the Passion of the Christ, was popular. It wasn't just because it was a story of the passion of Jesus. There were also some of these other mystical things that were connected to it. And if you remember, um, what was the movie that came out? Um, the Vinci Code. 
Remember when that came out? And how there was this kind of this sensationalism with the whole thing about, oh, you know, who is this person in this picture? And, and people love to talk about that, but it's the actual truth of the Word of God, the facts, the evidence that God wants us to see as we study this passage together. Now, Thabiti Anyabwile says in his book, The Gospel for Muslim, this thing. He says, once Jesus is raised in a conversation, it is important that Christians be able to explain the Bible's teaching about who Jesus is and what he has done. Again, that's very foundational. Do we understand who Jesus really is? Do we really understand what Jesus Christ has done? And friends, both of those realities are areas where those who do not want to be submissive to God will try and chip away to undermine the truth of the evidence that is being presented here by John. So as we read our passage today, it is important to see that John is presenting Jesus as the crucified Messiah who is also truly dead and truly buried. That is the, might want to say, the main point of this passage. To prove, to give evidence to the fact that Jesus is truly dead and that he is truly buried. Now, John's Gospel um, is unlike a lot of other books in the Bible in that a lot of times we come to the Gospels in particular and we think that the Gospels were some of the first books written in the New Testament. But actually, John, his Gospel and his letters and the book of Revelation, which he wrote, are actually the last books that were written that are comprised of the New Testament. John is at the end, the end of that first century, probably about 85 to 90 AD, looking back. And he's looking back, and already there have been false teachers and false teaching and heresies that have crept into the church and caused havoc. And so not only is he recording the events of Jesus, he is arguing a case, and as he is arguing a case, he is also seeking to identify false ideas that are already out there in the church. And so it's important for us to understand why he is even giving the evidence that he is giving. And you may be asking, why is the dating so significant? Well, if John is writing 50 years after Christ, and all this has taken place, the church has been birthed, it's been growing, it's been established, and this false teaching and stuff has been going on. There is a need then to correct that, but to correct it not with some mystical ideas, but to correct it with factual, evidential truth. And John, in writing his gospel, tells us that he's presenting evidence. Evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that all who read his gospel are to evaluate that evidence, believe, and the result would be life. And that is John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So John has this specific purpose to present Jesus Christ so that you and I will believe and live. And his purpose is also to show that his Messiah has come to die. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. 
John 1.29. We know that. But how is he the lamb that takes away the sin of the world? Well, as the lamb, he is going to go to a cross, and on that cross he is going to what? Die. His death is important. His death is not simply, you know, just something that happens along the way in the narrative. It is significant in the whole redemptive story. And so it's important that we understand today that Jesus is truly dead and he's truly buried. Now the implications of not believing this are extremely serious. Let me tell you why. In the first century, there was an ideology that crept into the church called docetism. And this is what docetism believed. That Jesus only appeared to be real and fully human. And so there was this appearance of humanity that suffered and went to a cross. So it really wasn't a physical Jesus, a physical human being whose name was Jesus of Nazareth that went to a cross. It was an appearance. And so what happens there is that the death of Christ and the significance of that death is removed from the equation. Docetism believed that matter is essentially evil and spirit is good. And so the Son of God who comes from heaven, who comes from the spirit realm, could not take on the form of man. Could not go to a cross, hang there as that sacrifice once for all, and die for the sins of all who would embrace him as Lord and Savior. Therefore, he is an illusion. But John speaks directly against that heresy, that false teaching, in the prologue. Listen to John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the Son of God, or Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This, this one from the Father is the Word made flesh. He's not just telling us a story. He's giving us evidence to counteract ideology that was running rampant within the church at that point in time to say, this is what is true. Jesus Christ truly died. This is also true, though, today. And I'll just choose one example in Islam. The teaching of Islam is that Jesus was a good prophet and a good example for mankind, but he didn't really die on the cross. They maintain that he was still alive when they took Jesus down from the cross. But there's no factual evidence for that claim. In fact, the evidence that we have only points to the fact that Jesus actually died on that cross. Jesus had to die on the cross. It is what he claimed he would do. It's what all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. I encourage you to do that. I know it's up on the screen, but if you would turn there. 
Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying and puts all this together for us kind of in a nice little package here. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's talking about Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the, ev- the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, how do you get rid of slavery to Satan? It is through the death of Jesus. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And that would be whom? All right, Israel in particular. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, big word there, for the sins of the people. The word propitiation means a covering. And the idea there is that he stood in our place when we deserve to actually receive the judgment of God because of our sin. But see, all that can only be accomplished if Jesus dies. So Islam, like docetism, denies that Jesus died as a substitutionary sacrifice or a propitiation in our place. But the scriptures teach that Jesus' sacrifice is both real and necessary. So John records this account to give critical evidence that Jesus is truly dead and buried, right? Trying just to make sure I'm drilling that home that we understand the importance of this passage from that perspective. So now let's look at the setting of what's going on here. Verse 31. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. What is going on here? There's two reasons for the Jews to come to Pilate. One, it was the day of preparation. Secondly, it was a curse for bodies to remain on the cross during any of the Sabbath days or the feasts, especially the Passover. Now, this, there's, there's kind of a flashback maybe you're, you're experiencing here as you read this. And the flashback may have something to do with these Jews who are coming to Pilate and they're asking him a question because, you know, they, they do not want to do anything that would harm the Sabbath or the Passover. Because, you know what, we are righteous Jews. Remember the righteous Jews that would not enter Pilate's dwelling place, the righteous Jews that were so careful in particular that they wouldn't break the law, but were willing to manipulate and connive and do all they could to catch Jesus and put him to death, those same Jews. I mean, there's an irony here, isn't there? These religious Jews are still functioning in this mode of self-righteousness and think that their activity and behavior before God honors him. But God still works through their disobedience, still works through their efforts here. 
Now, they're not willing for these men to hang on the cross for fear of offending God, like I said. And that, that fear ultimately comes from a passage in Deuteronomy. Now, it was the custom of the Romans and the uh, uh, Carthaginians and the Persians before them to leave the body of someone who's been crucified on that cross to rot. But this was in Israel, in Judea. And uh, for, for some reason, the, the rule, the, the law, the, the ideas, the, the, the standards of the Jewish culture were uh, basically trumped those practices and they were, they were allowed then to take those crucified bodies from those crosses and give them a burial. Now, it could just be a mass burial, but just not to hang them up on a cross. Why? Because Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 say this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is, a, is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land, the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And it's probably the latter part of that passage that they were more concerned about defiling the land so being sensitive to god's holy word <laughs> i say that facetiously all right the religious jews came to Pilate and specifically asked for two things what did they ask for what does it say their legs to be broken not for the jews legs to be broken but the people that are hanging on the cross for their legs to be broken all right and that their bodies would be taken away let's just kind of discover a little bit more what that's talking about um, the, the practice of breaking legs was a common practice in that day. They would use a, a big um, iron mallet and they would smash the legs of the victim. And what that would do, that would stop them from being able to push up and it would hasten the death. That was the idea. So what happens is they go to the first thief, the first criminal that is on the side of Jesus. They smash his legs and he is then going to die faster and then they go to the other one they smash his legs and he is going to die faster but when they come to Jesus what do they find he's already dead so they don't need to do that all right but the idea here is that they're breaking the legs so that they can speed up the process of this crucifixion secondly they ask that they can take away the bodies that is take away the bodies to be buried and listen I mean on a practical level the, of course the soldiers don't mind that why one less body they have to hassle with, okay? Um, and uh, they're certainly willing for the Jews to do the dirty work for them instead, right? So let's, that's the setting, but that setting and those two requests then become the structure of the next two sections. Because the section here now having to do with the soldiers and so on um, around the cross is really this idea is, is Jesus really dead? Okay, and the next section is going to be, was Jesus really buried? Okay, so let's look now at this, this, this first one. Jesus is truly dead. How do we know that? And, and John's going to give us, uh, I'm considering four testimonies. Some would say five testimonies, and I'll get to that in just a little bit. But I'm going to give you four testimonies that flow out of this text. We're not going to spend a lot of time wrestling with these. We're just kind of walking through them. The first one is the testimony of the soldiers, right? So the soldiers come, they see that, that Jesus is already dead, they don't need to break his legs. What does it say, verse 33? But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
There's no need to. Uh, human nature, if I don't have to exert energy, I'm not going to do it. Uh, there's no need to. But it's interesting, in Mark's gospel, the report went back to Pilate, and this is what it says, chapter 15, verse 44. Listen, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, talking about Jesus, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. So the, the message had gone back to Pilate that he was already dead. And in this whole process, one of the soldiers must have said, you know what, he's already dead, but let's make sure. And so he takes his spear, and it's not just like, you know, him, you know, you know, like we would do with like a, you know, an animal on the road that we think is roadkill. We're not sure if it's alive or dead. We kind of poke it, you know. This is not a poke. This is a thrust right up inside to make sure this person is dead. That's what's going on. So the testimony of the soldiers is this. We didn't need to break his legs. Why? Because he's dead. But just to make sure, I'm going to thrust the spear in there up and high to make sure that he is dead. All right? First evidence, first testimony John is giving. Okay? Now, second piece of testimony would be the testimony of John, verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. All right? This, again, is one of John's declarations of himself in kind of a humble way, um, kind of what you do sometimes when you, you're writing something, you're, you're not identifying your name, but you're talking about your, yourself in this way. That's what John is doing here. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Here he's talking about the one who has borne witness to this. His testimony is true, he says, and he knows that he is telling the truth. So John is saying, listen, I'm telling you, I saw this with my own eyes, that they didn't break his legs, that they thrust a spear up into him just to make sure that he was dead. And I'm telling you this, that you also may believe. Testimony number three, the testimony of Scripture. Verse 36, for these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of these, his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So like the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, no bones should be broken. Remember, he was the lamb of God, and yet his bones are not broken. This is also a picture of a righteous man from Psalm 34 and verse 20, talking about None of his bones will be broken. The second scripture is a quote found from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And this, this passage emphasizes the mourning among the nations because they have pierced him. They've pierced this, this shepherd of God. So Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and um, pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
You just feel the, the agony and the pain and the sorrow in what is being talked about there. So what, we, what is staggering about these quotations is that these prophecies were uttered hundreds of years before the event. Working backwards here, Zechariah's prophecy was about 500 B.C. David's prophecy in the Psalms there was about 1,000 years B.C. The Exodus prophecy here about no bones should be broken, which if we know the Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus the lamb, that's over 1,300 years before this event. And Scripture now is coming to bear in this moment, like we talked about last week. All these threads of, of themes are coming to a head here at this crucifixion time, at this Passion Week. So together with the other testimony, this amounts to an, an impressive barrage of evidence that demonstrates that Jesus really did die. You have the soldiers. Yep, he's dead. You have John, who was there, eyewitness. I saw it with my own eyes. You can believe what I'm saying is true. And let me also tell you what Scripture says. But there's one more testimony that I think is implied here. And that is the testimony of the Jews. Because what did they ask? And what are they after, ultimately? What was their end game? Was it that Jesus would be taken down from the cross, having suffered and punished a little bit so he can go on his merry way? Was that it? No. They wanted him dead. And so the implied evidence here is that that is exactly what took place. They were satisfied that Jesus was dead. So, Let's just think about the implications then of the evidence. Jesus is really dead. Cleansing comes through his death. Now friends, this is the meaning, in my understanding, of the blood and water that came out of Jesus. It was first of all visual, physical evidence that Jesus is dead, but I also believe that there is some symbolic truth to what is going on here. Again, back in Zechariah chapter 12, this paragraph continues on Zechariah chapter 12 and finishes up with Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. And I just want you, to, I want you to think through that with me a little bit here. In fact, let me go back and, and, and read it from chapter, chapter 12 and verse 10. He says, I will pour out on the house of David in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when, when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. All right? Then it talks about different families responding in this way. And then it finishes out the paragraph in chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now, I'm sure that John was aware of this prophecy. And I'm sure that John understands that blood in the Old Testament was a picture of cleansing for sin, that water was a picture of purification for uncleanness. Therefore, in Jesus' death, we can find deliverance and cleansing from sin and its defilement. 
And this morning, you have already affirmed that to be true by virtue of the fact that you sang a song with the corporate body of Christ. And it was this song written by William Cooper. There is a fountain filled with blood. There's actually a stanza we didn't sing that also I think speaks very, very clearly to what William Cooper is seeing as he studies John's gospel here. It says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. I mean, you've got to get the picture here. There is a fountain. It's pouring. Sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, as vile as he, wash all my sins away. See, there's this blood that pays for sin. There's this water that cleanses us from our uncleanness. So there's this washing dynamic. There's the blood that is there. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. See, this is just evidence after evidence after evidence that John is giving to say, you know what? You saw Jesus being crucified and saying, it is finished and breathing is last. That was his point of death. What I'm presenting to you now is the fact that there is evidence that he truly is dead. And friends, we need a dead Messiah. (laughs) The Jews could not comprehend a dead, suffering Messiah. But that is the plan of God. That is the plan of redemption, that the Messiah would come, suffer, and die. That's not the whole story. There's more to it. But that is a very significant part of the story. He must die. So Jesus is truly dead. Secondly, Jesus is truly buried. He's truly buried. And as the story unfolds, we come face to face with two prominent and wealthy Jews. I think there's some irony going on here too, and I think there's some lessons from this that not necessarily the whole establishment was against Jesus. Here are these two wealthy Jews, one by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, the other one Nicodemus. Aha, we know Nicodemus, we've heard about him before. But I would say that the account here summarized for us each man's actions as that of boldness. Let me explain myself. I think there's a boldness in Joseph's asking of Pilate for the body of Jesus. I think there's a boldness um, that comes from Nicodemus um, who who came to Jesus in the dark, privately, secretly, who now comes in the daylight. There is something that's interesting here because as we go down in verse 38, it says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews. That takes us back to John chapter 12 and verse 42. Look at John chapter 12 and verse 42. Now, friends, this is, this is a, a means, I think, of encouragement and I think also a means of warning. John chapter 12, verse 42. We'll pick up at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities, talking about the Jewish authorities here, believed in him, talking about Christ, 
but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's earlier on in the story. And now, at this moment, we find Joseph coming along with Nicodemus. And I think the, 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 the pause lessons, someone's walk with God, someone's coming to God comes in different stages, right? I mean, Jesus met with Nicodemus. He had questions. Here we, we have indication that, that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, what, what, what happened that now Joseph not only says, oh yeah, you know, I was a follower of Jesus. No, Joseph now goes and has a personal meeting with Pilate. And by the way, Pilate, can I have the body of the one that you condemned as being the king of the Jews, that, that was being presented as, as one who was rebelling against Rome, can I have his body? He's a friend of mine. I want to bury him. I mean, can you see the boldness from this place of fear, this place of this is what I'm going to do. And I don't know what happened in the process. The other question is, where are the disciples? Again, another reminder that God is at work in ways that we may not be ready to understand. And he uses people in ways that we may not be able to understand. We come to people that may be prepared specifically for that moment, and God is going to use them. Now, we don't know. We don't know specifically whether or not this actually was a, we're, we're, we're taking Jesus' body because we see him as the Messiah. The text doesn't tell us that. But what, what we do know is that these men were acting boldly unlike they were acting before. Now, with that, let's look through these texts and see what, what happens. Joseph of Arimathea basically um, is the one who goes and he actually secures the body of Jesus and provides the tomb for Jesus. So somehow he overcomes his fear and he boldly goes to Pilate, asks for the body, and he's able to take that body. Then we go to Nicodemus, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now it says Nicodemus brings spices about 75 pounds in weight. Anyone here carry a bag that was 75 pounds in weight to church? No. See, I th the, the significance of that, I think John is putting this in here and just reminding us. It's actually a little less than that, but it's actually 60, 69 point. There's a different measurement, but it translates better just saying it this way. Here, here's the point. This was... This was a lot of ointment. This is the kind of ointment you would bring to anoint royalty. Okay? Or someone extremely special. For example, when Gamaliel, great teacher Gamaliel, um, died, he was, he was body was anointed with very similar measures of ointment. Now what this also tells me, you can step back and think, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, both wealthy, respected people in that community. I, I think this picture we may have of Joseph of Arimathea carrying Jesus' body over his shoulder and you know, Nicodemus walking by the side of him, you know, carrying a bag full of ointment. 
I don't think that's the right picture. What do rich people usually have? Servants. So we're not talking about just, you know, they're kind of sneaking around, you know, through the garden, the tomb, and putting them in there. We're talking about people that are helping carrying the ointment, helping carrying the equipment necessary for burial. All right? there's, there's a different picture here going on. So this is something that is rather public. And for Nicodemus to be doing this is a pretty significant step for him. He's coming out, so to speak, from the darkness into the light. Hmm. Isn't that a theme in John's Gospel? So what began for Nicodemus as a private confusion at night has now become a public confession in the daytime, you might say. But they do something together. Come now together, and here's what they do. They bind his body, verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices. And I think the important part here is this, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Okay? It's not just we quickly got the body and got rid of it. It wasn't taken and thrown into a mass grave. The specific data here is that they bound his body in linen cloths with spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. How do you bind a body that is dead? In that culture, you do it very, very carefully. They didn't embalm. They would wrap, and they would bring the spices to keep the odor down. They, they bound the body. Secondly, they buried the body. Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now for John, you know, the, the rolling of the stone in front of the tomb is not, is not the point that he's trying to stress here. What he's trying to stress is when they got Jesus' body, he was already dead. And that's why they anointed him the way they anointed him. And the rest of the... the the Gospels also say there are some other steps in there from other people being involved in it. But he's trying, to, he's trying to paint a picture here. Jesus is truly dead and buried. So what? Well, this is where we want to spend some time as we kind of bring things to a head here, right? So when I say concluding thoughts, don't get excited. Number one, I want to kind of just, this is very, very simple. just want to flesh it out, though. Jesus' death, and this is, this is obvious, but it needs to be said. Jesus' death is a major theme throughout John's gospel. Okay? And I know, you're probably sitting there saying, okay, you know, I know he had to die. What's, but let's see it, and let's be sure so that we're not deceived, so that we can speak the truth, that we can defend the faith. This is a theme throughout John's Gospel. First of all, let's just talk about the fact that he is identified as the Lamb of God. John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus, talking about John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does Jesus take away the sin of the world? As a lamb? And what's the point of being a lamb? 
Now, the point there is that you are a lamb that is going to be slaughtered like the Passover lamb, that sacrificial lamb, and that sacrificial lamb, that Passover lamb, dies in our place. He dies, but he also dies in our place. So there is some significance to us in that he dies in our place. And we're going to see that just repeated and repeated here. Then John chapter 3, John chapter 3. You know the passage, John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, where, of course, the, the very familiar John 3, 16 is, but there's a greater context that is going on there. Turn to John chapter 3. And what is Jesus actually talking about here? Beginning at verse 14. It says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, what is, what's going on there? Well, Je uh, Jesus is, is going back to Moses. He's going back to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, that describe this, this, this event that took place in the wilderness when the children of Israel were rebelling against God, and, and they were rebelling against Moses. And so God brought judgment on them. He sent serpents to bite them, and they were dying. And so the people then turned. Um, well, let's, uh, Numbers 21, verse 6 says this, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. The people acknowledged their sin, and they appealed to Moses to pray for them. And in verse 8, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So this is how the Lord rescued his people from the punishment he had himself imposed for their rebellion. Look to this, 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 this serpent that's raised up and you will live. Now Jesus clearly had this episode in mind as we read there in John chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's a judgment. Judgment for your rebellion. How do you avoid that judgment? It's look to the mediator. Look to the one who is being lifted up. And of course, that idea of being lifted up is a parallel for Jesus being lifted up on a cross. You look to Jesus. So what is it that all the Israelites are struggling with? All humanity is struggling with? They are all condemned. They are already condemned because of their sin, because of the rebellion um, and as a result of that, God's wrath is poured out on them, except that Jesus now has gone to a cross, and on that cross has been our propitiation. He has been our 
covering. He has been the one that satisfies God's wrath. So God's wrath is being poured out on the shoulders of Jesus and not on those who look to him in faith, believing. Okay. But it can only happen if Jesus dies. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So this theme is found elsewhere in John's Gospel. Death is the penalty for sin, imposed as God's sentence of condemnation on all humanity. John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment um, but has passed from death to life. John 8, 21, So he said to them, again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. John 8, 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Okay, so this, this idea then of, of this, this serpent being lifted up and the, the ramifications then of Jesus being the answer, the one that brings life or, or you know, allows us to stay in our place of being condemned already, right? Then there's the prophetic word of Caiaphas. Let me remind you of that. That's found in John chapter 11, beginning at verse 47. If you remember the story here, the, 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 the religious leadership were gathered together. They're struggling with what Jesus is doing and the following that he has. And so it says in verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John adds this, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather in one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. In John chapter 18, here's a flashback. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Again, Jesus' death is about for the people, about for us. The last one I just want to identify here is this, and that is um, Jesus is the good shepherd. John chapter 10 in verse 11 and verse 15, this is what it says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The idea there is I'm willing to give my life for the sheep. Okay. Now, I, I'm, I'm laboring through this for a reason, guys, because John is painting a picture. John is arguing a case. John is wanting to make sure that his readers, not only to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that produces then in them this, this new life, this abundant life, this everlasting life, but he also wants to make sure that it's clearly understood that Jesus must die. 
And with the ideology floating around there, it's important for him to stress that and to give evidence to that. And he has been talking about that all throughout his gospel. The second then, might want to say, final thought is this. Not only is Jesus' death a major theme in John, it's also a major theme throughout the Bible. So just briefly here, Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb. Isaiah 53, Jesus the suffering servant. Now you read Isaiah 53, the parallels to the passion account are just throughout it. Then 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read this, beginning at verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with what? The Scriptures. See, this is the message of the Word of God. This is a theme throughout the Word of God, that Jesus, the Messiah, must die. And get this, not just must be crucified with the idea that he can be crucified and not die, but he must die in that crucifixion. He must be a sacrifice that doesn't just bleed, but that sacrifice must die in his shedding of blood. Okay? And then there's 1 Peter chapter 3.18, which I read earlier. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And friends, even as we are gathered today, we are going to celebrate in just a couple of minutes here, and the basis and the foundation of that celebration is this proclamation that we believe that Jesus died. And I'm just talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here. Beginning at verse 23, For I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat and drink, uh, or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's what? Death. Till he comes. So this is a theme throughout the Bible. And I've just touched on just a, a couple of little spots there um, in, that, in that section. Okay. The final thing is this, though. The final, final thing. Right? Jesus' death is necessary for our salvation. Without Jesus' death on the cross, you and I would not be brought near to God. We would not be reconciled to him. There would not be any redemption paid for our sin. We would be the objects of God's wrath still. So when anyone comes along and says, Jesus didn't really die, if it is true that he really didn't die, everything unravels. Why do you think people want to try and deceive God's people into believing that Jesus didn't really die? Because you remove that. You remove the whole redemptive plan. You remove the whole opportunity of being reconciled to God. And we are left on our own. And we are hopeless. And we're helpless. And if we're all hopeless and helpless together, why even try and pursue God? I'm going to do my own thing anyway. Because this is not really the plan. This is some kind of religious system we put ourselves in. Jesus took our place. 
as our substitute and died for us, to bring us to God, to pay for our sins. And of course, we know this song, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. See, Augustus' top lady, when he wrote this song, understood the implications of what was going on in this text. Jesus, by virtue of his death and by virtue of being pierced, demonstrates to us that he not only dies to forgive us of our sins, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all uncleanness. And so, friends, as we, as we continue on today, as we celebrate the Lord's table, as we remember his death, may we remember it with the certainty of the evidence that John gathers together for us as he presents the events that took place in the Passion. May we realize this is the message screaming out of the Bible that Jesus Christ died. He died a sacrificial death, but he died for us. And the implications on us now are that if we believe in him, if we truly put our faith in him, we now have a life, we have abundant life, and we have a savior, we have a master, we have a God who is constantly present with us, who is there to strengthen us and to grow us to be like him. Friends, we have so much to be thankful for. But we have to be sure that we believe this to be true. Lord, help us now as we contemplate these realities. Thank you, Lord, for John and his carefulness in presenting the evidence of Jesus' death. Lord, we, we are in awe that you would die for us. But, Lord, you have. And so, Lord, we today celebrate that. We ask, Lord, that as we celebrate the Lord's table that we would do so with hearts that are ready to come before you. Lord, if there's any sin in our in our lives right now, Lord, I just ask that we would pause and that we would humble ourselves and that we would confess our sin, Lord, to you. And if there's someone that we need to approach and, and make things right with, Lord, that your people would do that. And it may be a husband and wife together. It may be family members. It may be people within the body here. But, Lord, would we use this as an opportunity to remind ourselves that the life that we now have is because of you and is ultimately because of your death. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. And Lord, may you now receive from us praise of joy and thanksgiving as we celebrate the Lord's table together. We ask in your name. Amen.